Amy Jill Levine is university professor of New Testament and Jewish studies. E. Rose and Leona B. Carpenter, professor of New Testament studies, a professor of Jewish studies at Vanderbilt University Divinity School, College of Arts and Science in Nashville, Tennessee. She is also affiliate professor, Center for the Study of Jewish Christian Relations, Cambridge, UK, holding the BA from Smith College, the MA and PhD from Duke University, and five honorary doctors. She is often the misunderstood Jew, the church and the scandal of the, Jew, of the Jewish Jesus, the meaning of the Bible, what the Jewish scriptures and the Christian Old Testament can teach us, co-authored by Douglas Knight, the Edmund Historical Jew Jesus in Context, the 14th volume edited Feminist Companions to the New Testament and Early Christian Writings. With Mark Brittler, she edited the Jewish Annotated New Testament, self-described Yankee Jewish Feminist. <laughs> Professor Dean is a member of an Orthodox, although she is often quite unorthodox. It's our pleasure. Let us welcome a brilliant mother, one that will challenge as well as celebrate us. Come on, put our hands together for her. Testaments. There are two creation narratives, 
right? So we have Genesis 1 and everything is good. And then we have Adam and Eve where things are not quite as good as they might have been, right? Two different creation narratives. And when we get to the New Testament, there are four Gospels. Because there's no reason for everybody to think about Jesus the same way or everybody to think about God the same way. So the Bible already tells us we can celebrate differences. When it comes to Jews and Christians, we have different styles of worship. In the Orthodox synagogue that I attend, there would be no instrumental worship on the Sabbath. Right? We simply don't do that. And my heavens, you all in this church sing a whole lot better than people in my synagogues. <laughs> Certainly the case. We have different ways of engaging in conversation. Jews in general, following Jewish tradition, going all the way back to the Talmud, the first commentary on our scriptures. In the Talmud, one rabbi says one thing, another rabbi says something else, a third rabbi says some third thing, the sages say something else, and the Jews do what they want, right? <laughs> so we're, we're basically an argumentative culture. And in Jewish culture, if we think we know what you want to say, we don't need for you to finish the sentence, right? <laughs> we're just gonna talk over you. We don't wanna wait. We want to engage. At Vanderbilt in Tennessee, where I teach, that's considered extremely rude, right? So it's a different cultural style. And unless we understand why our neighbors do what they do and appreciate their own culture, then prejudice is going to come in and misunderstanding is going to come in. For Jews and Christians, we obviously have different Bibles. The Christian Bible has a part two, right? It's called the New Testament. And it's, yeah, you can amen the Bible, that's fine, that's good. And it's through the New Testament that Christians read the Old Testament. So the New Testament tells Christians how to interpret the scriptures of Israel. Well, Jews didn't stop writing texts when the Old Testament, when the Jewish Bible got done. We continue to write commentaries as well. And in the same way that Christians understand the Old Testament through the New, Jews understand the scriptures of Israel through rabbinic lenses, which means we can pick up the shared scripture, we can pick up the prophet Jeremiah or Isaiah or a psalm, and we're pre-programmed to read it differently because we come from different interpretive traditions. So it's the same Bible, at least for the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, but we're seeing it through very different lenses, and that's why we sometimes misunderstand each other. We've got different definitions about what a Messiah does. So if someone says, what's the job description in the church? Jesus, as the Messiah, saves people from sin and saves people from death. In Judaism, that's not the Messiah's job description. In Judaism, the Messiah's job description is to bring about the Messianic age, the time when there's universal peace and no war, and no poverty, and no disease, and no death. In fact, when Christians talk about the second coming, Christians, second coming? Yeah, okay. You can amen that one, that's a good one. Um, that's what Jews are talking about when we talk about the Messianic age. So different job descriptions for the Messiah. We have, we have different uh, leadership structures. So here, we're in what's technically an Episcopal church, because we have an Episcopos here, right? The word Episcopos means overseer. You can hear scopos, to look, to scope out something. Epi just means over. 
So an episcopos is an overseer, which means there's a hierarchical system. Jews are like Baptists. There's no head Jew to tell us what to do. Which is probably just as well, because if there were, we wouldn't listen anyway. Right? And if we think about religion, think about religion, how religion might get defined. Religion is usually understood to be a movement into which one comes by belief. Right? So we have Jews by choice who come into Judaism from outside of Judaism because they believe the teachings of Judaism. If we think about religion as a movement into which, which one comes by belief, a movement that is detached from where you're originally from, what your country is, what your nation is, what your ethnicity is, Christianity invented religion. Because in the first century, all other religions had a geographical connection to it. If you worshipped the God of Israel, you were connected to the land of Israel. If you worshipped Isis, and Isis was huge in the first century, goddess worship was big, you were connected to the land of Egypt. If you worshipped Mithra, you were connected to Persia. And Christianity says, in Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek ethnicity. Yeah, I got that one right. I teach New Testament. Ethnicity doesn't have anything to do with it. Jews never settled down just to be a religion. We always kept a people component. You're a Jew if your father's a Jew in the first century, and in the second century it shifts over to you're a Jew if your mother's a Jew. So we're both a religion into which one can convert, and we're also a people. And that makes a difference. Because Jews are a people, we're a family. It means we can argue with each other, we can disagree. And Jews spend most of our time arguing with each other. That's kind of what makes us Jews. If you know the New Testament, Jesus spends a lot of time arguing with his fellow Jews. That makes him Jewish. And you can do that because we're all members of the same family. Two brothers can argue, two sisters can argue, but at the end of the day, they're still family. But if you get into a religion by belief, then it's harder to argue. Because at some point, that belief might put you outside the system. It's easier for Jews to come up with multiple interpretations of scripture. It's easier for us to debate, passionately debate. We don't have such debates quite so often in the church because the church is more concerned about belief than Jews are. And that is, by the way, why we have the phenomenon of the atheist Jew. You can be a Jew and not believe anything. Atheist Christians doesn't work. Right? Doesn't work. So we're really quite different in a variety of ways. Let's look at some of the, the misconceptions people have. I'll start with erroneous Christian views of Judaism. This doesn't mean that all Christians think this about Jews, but it means that enough of them do to hit the radar. And if you happen to be one, then we have an opportunity of correcting it. I get some of this from my students. My primary job is to train Christians how to preach the gospel which is a weird job for a Jew, but somebody's got to do it in Tennessee. So here we go. The first erroneous view that Christians have of Jews is that Jews follow Torah, Jews follow the biblical commandments in order to earn God's love. It's called works righteousness. And we follow those commandments because God said, you have to do it, even though we really don't want to. So coupled with this idea that we follow the commandments to earn God's love, 
is the sense that the law is really burdensome, it's really hard to follow, and consequently all Jews are either sanctimonious or neurotic, right? Because we're desperately trying to fill up all these laws. And then Jesus comes along and says basically, don't worry, be happy. Right? You know, love God, love neighbor, everything else will take care of itself. But that's not the case. Jews do not follow the law in order to earn God's love. Jews already have God's love. And it's through God's love that we got the Torah in the first place. The Torah is a gift of grace to us. And the reason we follow it is because that's how we respond to God's initial love for us. Right? We don't do it to earn anything. We do it because that's what we're called to do as Jews. And Jews don't find the law burdensome. To the contrary, the law is a blessing. Sabbath law says once a week I can put the computer down, I can shut the TV off, and I can spend time with my family and my community and my God, which is why the Christian church kept a hold of the Sabbath. It was one of those things they kept, and good thing, too. In terms of Jesus and the law, Jesus keeps the law. In fact, he tightens it up on occasion. The law, yeah, that one's good, too. You're just going to check me on this, aren't you? <laughs> the law says don't commit adultery. Jesus says don't think about it. Right? The law says don't murder. Jesus says you have to love your enemy. That's not making it easier. But it's going to the intention of what the law is. So first concern, law. Law is good, and Jesus thought so. A second comment that I hear sometimes from my students is that first century Judaism was highly misogynistic, that women had no rights whatsoever. Um, sometimes my students will compare early Judaism to the Taliban, and then suggest that Jesus comes along like a first century feminist. So here's Jesus, a member of the National Organization for Women. Um, or maybe like that sorority you got the honorary thing from, right? Um, and Jesus is again, he's like, don't worry, be happy. But it turns out that first century Judaism had multiple major roles for women. The New Testament's one of the best sources we have for Jewish women's history. So for women in the church and women in the synagogue, boy, the New Testament gives us great stuff. What do we find out? Women own their own homes. Martha welcomed Jesus into her home. The original house church in Jerusalem is at the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark. They're patrons of the movement. Jesus, Jesus doesn't earn a paycheck, right? He gives free health care. <laughs> somebody's somebody's got to pay the bills. And the Gospel of Luke tells us it's women who support him according to their means. So it's Jewish women who are serving as patrons. Women show up in synagogues. They show up in the Temple of Jerusalem where they are welcomed. They show up in public and nobody calls out, oh my God, it's a woman in public, run away. They have access to their own funds. They have freedom of travel. And when Jesus' followers, the men, hightailed it out of there, it was the women who stood witness of the cross. Jewish women. So if I want to know about women's roles in the first century, I can go to the New Testament to find it. Jews did not treat women as slaves or women as, as chattel. Jews recognized the enormous contribution that women make to the community of God. And Jesus, being a good Jewish boy, took the point. I think he got it from his mom. <laughs> Next. 
Some Christians think that Jews worship an Old Testament God of wrath. The eye for an eye God, the nasty God. And then Jesus invents the, the daddy God of love. When I get that nonsense from my students, I am inclined to say to them, fine. The Lord is my shepherd. His mercy endures forever. Thank you. But you are condemned to the place of outer darkness where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's Jesus who describes hell as like a dentist office without Novocaine and you never get out of the chair. It's the same God. The God of the church is the same God as the God of the synagogue and the God that Jesus worshipped is the same God that I worship. It's the same God. And we have to realize that. Fourth view. The Jews say that they're the chosen people and they're special and they're better than everyone else. And therefore God only loves the Jews and only the Jews are in a right relationship with God. Well, a few points about this. First, the New Testament uses the language of chosen people. It's in 1 Peter. Because the early Christians considered themselves to be God's chosen as well. But what we fail to ask is, chosen for what? Right? So in the Jewish liturgy, we say before our Torah readings, and I have to use the Hebrew here, Asher Baharanu Mikol Ha'amim, who has chosen us from among all the people, and the next line is Shanatan Lanu Et Torato, and gave to us his Torah. What are Jews chosen for? To follow Torah. That's our role. And the Gentile nations have their own roles because there are multiple ways of witnessing to God. Jews did not think that only Jews were in relationship with God, which is why Gentiles were welcomed in the first century and are welcomed today in the synagogue. Any Christian, any Muslim, any non-Jew can come into the synagogue on Friday night and Saturday on the Sabbath or any other day and worship with us. And by the way, if you come to us on the Sabbath, we don't pass a collection plate. So you can come for free. <laughs> just as any Jew would be welcomed in the church, right? A number of my Christian friends think that Jews rejected Jesus, so this gets into the why the Jews didn't sign on to the program, that Jews rejected Jesus because they were expecting a warrior messiah, some militant figure who would get the Romans out of the country uh, by war, and they rejected Jesus because he talked about peace. But that's not the case either. In the first century, there are multiple views of who the Messiah was and what the Messiah would do. Some Jews were expecting a priest. Other Jews were expecting the Archangel Michael. Still other Jews thought John the Baptist was the Messiah. The Dead Sea Scrolls attest to at least two Messiahs. Sometimes it takes two to get the job done. But did they reject Jesus because he counseled peace? No. The vast majority of Jews thought that when the Messiah comes, the Messianic age would come with it. And we've already talked about that a bit. So when the Messiah comes, there's peace on earth and goodwill to everybody. And it really happens that way. Or as Woody Allen, right, the great Jewish theologian, Woody Allen once put it, when the Messiah comes, the lion will lie down with the lamb and the lamb will not be nervous. <laughs> The reason most Jews did not accept Jesus as the Messiah is because they did not see the coming of the Messianic age. 
And what the church does is decouple, detach, the coming of the Messiah from the Messianic age, so that what happens, the church posits a second coming. So when Jesus, when, when and if, you have to be careful here, when and if Jesus comes back, then we can say to him, or the Messiah comes, we can say, were you here the first time? Right? And if he was, then the Jews can look at the Christians and say, okay, you were right, we were wrong. Um, and if the Messiah says, no, first visit, then we'll have some additional Bible study to do. And as, as, as I mentioned in the synagogue this morning, I think when the Messiah comes back, it's going to be a girl and we're all going to be surprised. We don't know. We don't know. So the reason the Jews in general did not accept Jesus as Messiah is because the Messianic age didn't come about. When Jews talk about the coming of the Messiah, that's the Christian second coming. A number of my Christian friends think that if they simply read the Old Testament, that's the term for the Bible in the church, they understand what Jews are doing. That doesn't work. I once had a fellow say to me, Dr. Levine, do Jews in urban areas need a zoning variance in order to offer animal sacrifice? <laughs> because he had read Leviticus, which talks about animal sacrifice, and then he had read the Epistle to the Hebrews, which is a book in the New Testament, that says there can't be atonement without blood, he figured Jews were reading the epistle to the Hebrews, you know, because it was written to us, but we don't because it's in the New Testament. And consequently, he thought Jews still do animal sacrifice. We haven't been doing animal sacrifice since the year 70, when the temple got burned down. Can't do animal sacrifice if you don't have a temple, and we're not likely to be doing it in the near future because there happens to be a mosque on the site. And taking the mosque down, I think, would be unadvisable given contemporary political climate. <laughs> to read the Old Testament doesn't get us Judaism. Judaism is the commentary on the Old Testament. And unless we know the commentaries, unless we know how the Jewish tradition over the past 2,000 years plus has understood those scriptures, we won't understand Judaism. It's not just the Old Testament. And finally, a number of my Christian friends don't think that Jews believe in resurrection of the dead. Well, a number of Jews don't. Jews, Jews are not the same, right? If, the old saying, if you have two Jews, there are three opinions. <laughs> Jews have been debating pretty much everything since Moses came down the mountain. Some Jews, typically in what's called the Reform Movement, do not believe in resurrection of the dead. But in the conservative synagogue, which is the synagogue I was in this morning, in my own Orthodox synagogue, resurrection of the dead is on the books. And we pray to God, as the Hebrew says, You can hear under to life. God gives life to the dead. First century Jews, in general, believed in resurrection of the dead. If you know your New Testaments, Christians, you've heard of a group called the Sadducees, and the Sadducees are usually identified by the Sadducees, those who say there's no resurrection of the dead. That's what makes them the outliers. Everybody else thought there was resurrection of the dead. And we can even see it in the New Testament. In the Gospel of John, there is a fabulous story in John 11 usually called the raising of Lazarus. Okay, so Lazarus is dead. He's really dead. He's been dead for four days. 
And Jesus comes to the tomb, and Lazarus has a sister named Martha. Martha is my favorite woman in the New Testament. She has a mouth on her, she's fabulous. And she says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And I don't think she was saying it in all that gentle a way, right? But then she realizes it's Jesus, so she's, yeah, whatever you want, I'm sure you can get. And Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, do you believe in the resurrection? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe in the resurrection on the last day. That's the Messianic age. That's what most Jews would have said. So we can do Jewish history on resurrection by looking at the New Testament. And that's where Jesus responds, I am the resurrection and the life. That's where that comes from. So it's Jewish tradition. Those are my top seven Christian misunderstandings of Judaism. Here are my top seven Jewish misunderstandings of Christianity. One, the Christians are really polytheists. They worship three gods. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? And in some traditions, Mary is kind of sneaking her way up. Christians are not polytheists. Christians worship one God with three manifestations. So if language of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is confusing, think about God the Creator, God the Redeemer, and God the Sustainer. Or think about how in Judaism we have multiple names for God, and each name has a kind of different description to it. There's Hashem, the Tetragrammaton, we would say Adonai. But there's also Elohim. And there's El Shaddai and El Elyon. And we Jews also talk about the Shekhinah, the feminine presence of God. She kind of gets to be the Holy Spirit. Right? So Christians are not polytheists, but they believe that God became incarnate. Incarnate means to take on flesh. Think of chili con carne. It's the same root. It means flesh. Chili with meat. Right? So the incarnation is God taking on flesh. In first century Jewish context, that made some sense. In fourth century Jewish context, it didn't. Which means when first century Jews believed Jesus to be the divine presence on earth, they were still Jews in good standing. What made sense in the first century does not make sense in the fourth or the fifth. Jews and Christians have much more in common than we would have thought. A second comment that I often hear is that the New Testament is anti-Jewish. I actually have a PhD in the New Testament. And when I first started studying New Testament, I had an aunt who said to me, why are you reading that hateful, obscene, anti-Jewish text? And I said to her, have you ever read it? No, she responded, why would I read that hateful, obscene, anti-Jewish text? <laughs> I mean, that's not helpful. In the New Testament, Jesus engages in invective against Jews. He yells at them because he doesn't think they're following their Judaism the way God wanted them to. Well, what could possibly be more Jewish? <laughs> read Amos. Read Jeremiah. Read the prophet. Read Moses who complains a fair amount. Right? The idea of Jews criticizing other Jews for not behaving as Jews should behave, that's part of the course. But what happened was Jesus' words spoken by a Jew to other Jews then get put in a Bible, which is the Bible. And that's where the problems come in. Is the New Testament anti-Jewish? The question's a non-starter. If somebody says it is, and somebody else says it isn't, then we're stuck. So what I do tell my students is that is it or isn't it is really not a helpful question. 
But we do know the New Testament has been interpreted in anti-Jewish ways, and our job is to prevent those negative interpretations. And then we can move on with that next. That Christians, some Christians want to convert us because they disrespect Judaism. Right? That's not true either. The reason Christians evangelize, to evangelize, it's a Greek term from the Greek term oi angelion. Oi does not mean oi. <laughs> it's not oi, it's eu, like eulogy or euphemism, it means good. And evangelium, you can hear the word angel underneath that angel. An angel is just a messenger. Oyangelion, good news, good message. It comes into English as gospel. The reason evangelists, good news givers, want to convert us is because they believe they've got something special and they want to share it with us. They're not converting us out of disrespect. They're trying to convert us out of love. Right? So the response should not be that disrespectful. But if we're not interested in converting to Christianity, all we need to do is say, as I would to a missionary, my heart is completely fulfilled in my own Judaism. There's no gap there that I need Jesus to come and fulfill. But do tell me what you believe and do tell me why, because that way I can understand your own religion better. Evangelists do not hate, they love. Next, number four. Finding Jesus in the pages of the Old Testament is wrong he's not there. Well, if you read the Old Testament through Christian lenses, he's there. And you'll find him there. You'll find him on pretty much every page. That's okay. Jews, we read through different lenses. And the fact is, when Jews read our scriptures, the Tanakh, the Bible of the synagogue, we see a bunch of stuff in there that's not really in the Hebrew either. Because we're filling in gaps, and we're adding stories, and we're putting on interpretation. It doesn't make one right and one wrong. Religion is not math, and that's just as well. Religion is not a science. Faith is not a science. What's true is true because it's in your heart. Gesundheit. It's not math, so we respect each other's views. Number five, Christians only need to believe in Jesus in order to be saved, and therefore they don't have to do anything. All they have to do is believe. Well, that's a misreading of Christianity. And if you read the New Testament, Jesus and Paul and pretty much everybody else has lots of instruction for how Christians are supposed to behave, right? It's not just a don't worry, be happy. It's a love your enemy system. And Jesus makes it very clear that it's not those who say, Lord, Lord, it's those who do the will of the Father, which means feeding people who are hungry and clothing people who are naked and visiting people in prison and living a life of justice and righteousness and compassion. There are enormous requirements put on the church. It's not just believe and that's the end of it. Belief is where you start and then you live out a life of sanctification. Right? Number six, Christianity is really basically a pagan religion with pagan traditions. Like Jesus' body and blood, and Jews never would eat blood. Blood, we don't eat blood. Um, and all this stuff about the Trinity, it's all pagan, and Mary's really a goddess. Nonsense. And neither is Christianity pagan because it doesn't follow most of the laws in the 
Old Testament. It turns out in the first century, and Jews as well today, never thought that Gentiles, and here Gentiles means non-Jews, they never thought that, that non-Jews had to follow any of those laws, because the laws were designed for Jews. The prophet Zechariah talks about the day when 10 Gentiles, 10 pagans, will grab hold of the coattail of the Jew and say, take me with you to Zion so we can worship the God of Israel. But they don't say, circumcise me when we get there. <laughs> right? And just as well, they come in as Gentiles. First century Jews and Jews today never thought you had to be Jewish in order to be in a right relationship with God. Because if God is only the God of the Jews, then the God can't be the God of everybody. And early Jews recognized that God was the God of everybody. And Jews have one way of approaching that God and one way of worshiping. And other people have other ways of worshiping the same God. Christianity isn't paganism. Christianity is Gentiles worshiping the God of Israel. It's part of the system and it fits. And finally, a number of my Jewish friends think that Christians are just focused on getting into heaven. That's the whole thing. Believe in Jesus so you can get into heaven and everything has that heavenly focus. Wrong. It's so wrong. Um, when I came in here, I saw uh, an advertisement about Howard Thurman. Right? Um, Howard Thurman was not just focused on getting into heaven. He was focused on getting the American people to act according to the way Americans should act. If we look at the history of the church from the New Testament on, it's not a focus on getting into heaven. That's an aberration. Getting into heaven is God's decision, not the decision of the individual Christian. The job of the individual Christian is to live out a life in conformity with what Jesus taught and substantially in conformity with the moral laws of the, the scriptures of Israel. Not all Christians are just so focused on getting into heaven. When Christians are only focused on getting into heaven, that's become an aberration, right? Jesus says the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with, well, in Hebrew, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your spirit, your soul, and with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what's important. God takes care of getting into heaven on God's time. And that's what Christians actually think. So what does this mean? It means that I'm timing out perfectly. But other than that, <laughs> it means that we have misunderstandings of each other. For far too long, Jews and Christians have been afraid to talk about the differences. We're much more interested in holding hands and singing kumbaya. Right? We need to know the differences. And we need to know that the differences are actually okay because God didn't create us all to be the same. We need to know that we share a common history so that Jesus in the first century was a perfectly good Jew who made perfectly good sense within Judaism. We have a common past. And if we take our tradition seriously, we have a common future. Because when the Messiah comes or comes back, depending upon your view, then we come together again because we worship the same God. Does that follow? The very fact that we can celebrate Havdalah tonight and put voices of Jews and Christians together, that we can hold each other's hand and celebrate both what we share and where we differ, 
My goodness, a Havdalah Jewish service in a Christian church? That's a foretaste of the world to come. Thank you for letting me share a little bit of this
And the title over the cross, the Latin is titulus. Um, you've probably seen this in pictures, I-N-R-I. Jesus Nazareus Rex Udiorum. It's Latin for Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Pilate kills him as a political revolutionary. Crucifixion is like a Roman form of advertising. It's Rome's way of saying, here's what we do to anybody who pretends to be a king. Because in the Roman world, there's only one king, and that's Caesar. And it turns out that the Jewish authorities knew it too. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, people want to make him a king. And they're hailing him. Already in the Gospel of John, they're saying they want to make him a king. So we have to look at the mob. It's Passover time. Jerusalem is swelled with pilgrims, probably over a, mil a million Jews, not enough hotel rooms, and God knows not enough bathrooms. <laughs> Tempers are high. And Pilate, the governor, comes in from Caesarea and brings his troops into the city to tell the Jews, you're under occupation. All they need is one person to present himself as king, and you've got a revolution on your hands. The high priest and the governor need him out of the way. So when we do the politics, we also know what's going on. <coughs> I talked to your friend, Dr. Monica Cole. She's a professor of systematic theology at Claremont School of Theology. She asked, what current practice of Christian tradition is the closest to what Jesus would have done in Jesus' time? Would Jesus appreciate the Christian practice uh, would Jesus be at home in a church? <laughs> Clearly this one, although I think he'd have to ramp up on the music. Um, you know, it's the electric stuff I think would confuse him. Um, we told it then. <laughs> too bad. Too bad. Um, Jesus would have been at home pretty much everywhere. So we find him in synagogues, but we find him also hanging out with, with sinners. And, and sinners doesn't mean, you know, people who might have had a ham sandwich. Um, sinners, are people, sinners are people who have placed themselves outside the bounds of the community, right? So Jesus is hanging out uh, at the parole board. Jesus is hanging out at the biker bar. Jesus is hanging out at the drug house, right? Because he's going to people who have, who have broken community. That's what a sinner is. And he's saying, you're part of that community too, and I will embrace you, and then you need to come back in. Um, I think Jesus is probably more at home in a bar than he would be in either a church or a synagogue. Um, he's more at home on the road. Foxes have holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's at home where anybody would welcome him in. Would he feel at home here? Well, if you treat him like you treated me, I suspect so. I suspect so. African Americans, and this is my last question, I'm going to turn to you and open it up for your panel. Um, African Americans have certainly taken religion and used it as a method, means to find liberation, freedom, joy, maybe. That's why we sing the way we sing, worship the way we worship, because it was the one place that we would find freedom, particularly in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, a church founded really on liberation theology. Yet the African-American is not a member or certainly a people of the book. Yet James Cone suggests that God is for the oppressed. So African-Americans feel oppressed. This partnership, this coalition, 
that we have in the Jewish community. Is there tension for, within that context? Is that same God who certainly offers the Exodus, the movement out of the oppression found in Egypt, the same God that helps us move out of Egypt, the same God that helps us move out of Mississippi, Alabama, and the others? Yeah. Um, I think so. I think it's the same God, but but you know, at, at the risk of, at the risk of criticizing the Reverend, right? Which, see, in the synagogue, I can criticize my rabbi all the time, and that's that's to be expected. In the church, it's a little more respectful. But I'm Jewish. I don't have to play your game. Um, <laughs> I think African Americans are people of the book, because I have never seen such good Bible study as I see in African-American churches. Certainly better than what I get in liberal Protestantism and way better than what I get in Catholicism. And I suspect the African-American church on the whole knows the Old Testament on the whole better than most Jews do. So I think you are people of the book. You're just not taking credit for it. All right? Next point. Um, yeah, are there tensions between the black community and the Jewish community? There have been. There have been, and that's something we need to talk about, in part because our oppressions have been different. So, you know, the standard way of looking is questions of affirmative action, right? And Jews are saying, we know what quotas are, we know what it means to keep us out, now we're being kept out again. And the African-American community says, tell us about being kept out. Yeah, right. Um, what do we do? We need to talk with each other. We need to talk with each other. For me growing up, and I was very fortunate in terms of my family, um, I have a cousin by marriage, and the families were close, who was a civil rights worker um, who got killed in Mississippi. And it's one of my first memories. It's a fellow named Mickey Schwerner, he may be familiar to you. That's when Mickey went missing. Um, and having that explained to me as a child, what was explained to me is when anybody is hurting, when anybody is oppressed, because you know what it's like to be oppressed, you go out and you help those other people, right? Um, so that's how I understood my own Judaism, and that's still how I understand it as a professor in a divinity school, which is 30% African American, right? So you meet people where they are. It's the same God, and it's entirely appropriate, I think, for the African American church to look at Moses and say, that's our liberation too, right? Because the Bible is open to every reader. And we're all going to read from our own social location, from our subject position. We're going to say, what does this text mean to me? And God knows the Bible speaks, and it speaks well to the African-American community. And the cool thing is, it can say different things to different people. And sometimes it can say the same thing. It's a God of God. The God is the God of liberation. And the important thing is to say not only liberated from slavery, oppression, disease, War. Yes, it's liberated too, to full authenticity, to full recognition, to be able to do what you want to do because God gave you the gifts to do it, and it's your responsibility and everybody else's responsibility to open those doors and have it done. That, that's an amen, man. You spoke to the Amen. Rabbi How would you characterize Paul's description of Jesus' life in terms of both what it adds to what the New Testament has said about Jesus and to how it shaped Christianity as it would unfold in relationship to Judaism. Yeah. Um, the question, how would I, so now I have to fuss at you. I mean, how, but you're a rabbi, it's okay. Um, how, Paul doesn't 
doesn't say much about Jesus' life. He, he quotes Jesus very, very few times. He says things like, Jesus says, don't get divorced. Okay, which most people kind of ignore. Um, he also says, Jesus says, those who preach the gospel should get their living by the gospel, which means you all on the stage ought to get paid, right? But for the most part, he doesn't quote Jesus at all. He talks about um, Jesus in terms of his death and his resurrection and his relationship to the reconciliation of humanity to divinity. Um, Paul is attempting to explain, and Paul has a tough mark itself. Paul is attempting to explain how a Galilean Jew who died on a Roman cross happens to be God incarnate. That's a tough sell, right? Paul himself describes it as a scandal and a folly. He says the Gentiles don't get it, the Jews don't get it. And he's a genius because he manages to get these Gentiles not to turn into Jews, but to be Gentiles who worship the God of Israel, and it's the Christ who opens the door for them. So I don't think the tradition miscarries with Paul. I think what Paul does is take, take the Jewish tradition and its understanding of a Messiah, or this particular Messiah, and say, this is what it would look like if practiced by Gentiles. But it's not a miscarriage of the tradition. And when Paul says Gentiles don't have to follow the law, again, that's, that's a good Jewish view. Gentiles don't have to follow the law. But in what ways does Paul, if at all, differ from Jesus as he will describe Christianity? I think they're substantially alike. I mean, Paul's speaking Greek and Jesus is speaking Aramaic, and I think Jesus probably had longer hair. Um, but they're doing basically the same thing. They're bringing people into a new family. Jesus is interested in what anthropologists call fictive kinship groups. Today we would say like sororities. Um, the black church is better at this than the white church, and, the, and I don't know if you do it here, but often in the black church, people get referred to as mother something or sister something or brother something, right? And the idea is you take it seriously. These people really are members of your family. And if one goes missing, you make a phone call. Why weren't you in church, right? That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters, right? Those who hear the will of God and do it. Paul's saying exactly the same thing. He's creating new families of all these Gentiles and Jews together, because there are some Jews in Paul's churches, and saying, now you've formed a new family. That's the same thing Jesus is doing. And in Jesus' new family, you love everybody in that family as if they're your own blood kin. And Paul is saying you do the same thing. In requiring that you love your new family as your own blood kin, was Jesus also saying you need, and Paul saying, do you need to leave your former family? I think it's, that's a good question. I think it's a matter of perspective and emphasis. For Jesus, being in his family is more important than your biological family. Unless you hate your father and mother and wife, you have no part of me. To the man who says, at least let me bury my father, Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You come follow me. And we actually see him pulling people away from their families, right? And that happened in antiquity. But that often happens in terms of religious revival when your heart tells you to do one thing and your family says, no, you stay where you are. That's what's happening with Jesus. And that's in part why he's difficult for some folks to find. But we see the same thing today with people who are, for example, Jews by choice. And they might say, you know, 
my dad's a minister, but I can't be in the church anymore because my heart tells me this is where I need to go. It doesn't make the person bad. It doesn't make the parents bad. It actually makes the parents pretty good that they've encouraged the child to think independently. But for Judaism and for Jesus and for Christianity, the important thing is the community. And you show that concern for the community. And it's a matter of emphasis. When push comes to shove, is it going to be the biological family or is it going to be the family of God? And that's hard. So one last question to help me understand Christianity. And again, I understand that there's many different orientations within Christianity. But when you were talking about God, what baffles Jews, so this is my question as a Jew, is the difference between God being also incarnated human. Because that's not part of the Jewish tradition, that Correct. possibility, coupled with Christians often praying to Jesus rather than to God directly. Give me some understanding, give us some understanding as Jews, how we can understand that, if you will, different, very different yeah. understanding of relationship with God. Right. It's a wonderful question. Um, the best answer is it's a mystery. It doesn't really work logically. Right? And that's actually not a bad answer because, again, religion is in science. Right? Jesus is both fully God and fully human. How does that work? Because it's a miracle. Right? Um, for the Christian who prays through Jesus or to Jesus, if Jesus is God, the Christian is praying to God. You just pray to a manifestation of God. Right? Um, one way, and it's not a perfect analogy because there's nothing in Judaism that's equal to it. So it's hard to come up with an example. It's like saying, you know, what does a peach taste like? You, you really can't describe it, you just have to know. But you might think about, you might think about Jesus being to the church what the Torah is to the synagogue. Jesus is identified in the Gospel of John as the Word of God, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's both God and he's separate from God. It's a mystery, don't think about it too hard. <laughs> he's, paradox is fine. He's the Word of God incarnate in the presence of the community. That's what the Torah is. So how do Jews understand God? We read the Torah. We don't pray to the Torah, but God knows. We take it out to the community and the community stands up when it's in our presence and we kiss it. You know, and to somebody on the outside, it looks kind of like idolatry. Oh my God, they're kissing a Torah. What is that? Um, because we understand God's presence through the Torah. That's our word. And the church understands God's presence through Jesus. That's the church's word. So if we think about Jesus as kind of like the Torah, that makes sense to us. We refer to the Torah as the tree of life. It's Chaim, right? Jesus is the life in the world. It serves the same function. It shows us how we can be intimate with God. We have a book, they have a person. But again, it's the same God. There were just different roots to it. And in Christianity, God takes on human flesh. But in Judaism, God manifests in various ways. The Shekinah, the divine presence of God on earth, right? Or the idea of God's spirit um, coming to us. And we talk about that. The church is doing the same thing. They've just got Jesus in there. And it's different, and difference is okay. 
I'm Tony. Getting to something that I think is distressing for many Americans, particularly right now, the last week or so, uh, is the relationship between Israel uh, and the Muslim world. Uh, it seems to be, it's made our gas prices go up and all of that. Unfortunately, that's the biggest reason we're worried about it. But I think just looking at it from a biblical perspective, uh, recognizing that uh, Jewish persons and, uh, and Muslims are all sons of Abraham. And I think Christians too. That's true. But I think it's baffling the battle, this thousand of year battle uh, between Muslims and Jews uh, and how it still impacts our world today. And, I, and I'd just like you to speak to that both from an Old Testament and a Christian or a New Testament perspective. Just to give us some understanding, you know, where is that thing going? I mean, is there any hope? <laughs> it's a, yeah. That's a hell of a question. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, we're not going to solve the entire Middle East perspective, but we, we can start at least with the Bible. Um, in Genesis, uh, when Hagar sees the angel in the wilderness, the first time she runs away, um, and she's fleeing from the hand of her mistress, so here's a slave who's fleeing abuse, and she's pregnant, um, and the angel says to her, the child you're carrying will be a wild ass of a man, and his hand will be against his brother. Right? But, but Hagar gets sent back. So we're already getting, and then finally she gets expelled again. And we have this idea from the angel's prediction that Ishmael, the son, and Isaac will never get together because they're fated to be apart. When Abraham dies, Ishmael comes back and Isaac and Ishmael bury the body together. The brothers reconcile. Right? Um, in fact, Esau marries Ishmael's daughter. They're still in the system. So the Old Testament, the Torah, suggests that, that the children of Isaac and the children of Ishmael, once they can bury the past, once they can recognize that they really are connected, there's hope for them to come together. The problem passages is Galatians 4, where Paul says, cast out the slave woman with her child, we don't want anything to do with her. And that's what gets us things like, oh, the Crusades, right? So it's not like Christian-Muslim relations have been all that peachy over the years either. Um, but the text also talks about reconciliation. So you have Ephesians talking about breaking down the dividing barrier. And I think that's breaking down the dividing barrier not only between Jews and Greeks, it's between Christians and everybody else. So the Bible actually opens up to the possibility of reconciliation across the board. And I think you're right. If we all started remembering that we're children of Abraham and there's a possibility of reconciliation, then we might do that. In the work that I do, and I do a fair amount of consulting on Middle East issues, particularly with liberal churches that are highly anti-Zionist and very much in favor of boycott, divesting, and sanctioning, and my job is to say their theology is a little bit, I think, unhelpful. Um, to say, what can we do as American Jews and American Christians to support the peace process, right? So things like creative reinvestment in Israeli-Palestinian companies that work together, educational programs that bring Jewish and Muslim kids together, and Christian kids as well, to work with each other, and to try to listen to each other's stories, because the Palestinian story is not the Israeli story. And unless we hear everybody's stories, we're not going to be in a position in, able, in order to work things out. 
and to make sure that when one person says, I'm hurting, we don't simply say, but I'm hurting more. We listen to each other's stories, and then we might begin to listen. 